0: Well, uh, I read a story this last week about a, a fortune teller and a frog. Uh, they were uh, huddled together, gazing into a, a crystal ball. Uh, when the fortune teller begins to, to just tell the frog, he goes, Hey, listen, I see in this ball a beautiful, attractive young woman. And he goes, Matter of fact, she's looking at you. And the frog kind of pumps out his chest and kind of begins to you know, smile a bit. And he goes, Look at this girl. He, And then the fortune teller says, look, from the moment she sets eyes on you, she's going to desire to know you. Matter of fact, she's going to have this insatiable desire, this quest to to gaze upon you. She's going to be compelled to get close to you. You're going to fascinate her immensely. And the frog goes, well, tell me more. Like, am am I at a singles club? Where am I? And he goes, no, you're in biology class. Today, uh, we are going to kind of peer into the future, not from the lens of a crystal ball, uh, but we're certainly going to look at it from the lens of God's Word. If you are Uh, New with us uh, over the last uh, several months, um, with a couple of breaks in between, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and uh, we are in Romans chapter 8. And so if you have your Bibles, encourage you to turn there, whether you're on this campus or you're joining us in Edgewood. If you're joining us in Edgewood, we're glad that you're hanging out with us this morning. also want to welcome those that are joining us online. Um, And uh, we're going to dive in here in a few moments to Romans chapter 8. And today we're going to be looking at the believer in Christ and their future. And this is a very challenging text. It's a text that if you're reading through Romans chapter 8, it can oftentimes kind of get glanced over. You can certainly read it without taking a whole lot of time to really dive into it. And if you do dive into it, you could probably... Be a little bit perplexed or even leaving with a handful of questions. But today, I want to give some clarity to a very challenging text, but also leave you asking the right questions. And so, if you have your Bibles, let's dive in uh, here in a few moments to Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 18. But before we do, let me just give you a couple of moments of context. Last week, we've talked about living in the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, you could just glance up to verse 16, it just says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then it goes on and just says, and if we are children, then we're heirs. And if we're heirs of God, we're heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order to be glorified with him. And really what Paul's message and point is, is really as we've read through Romans chapter eight in the last handful of weeks, is that as a believer in Christ and more importantly, a follower of Christ, you know that because God's Spirit bears witness in your soul. Uh, we know in Acts chapter 17, Paul says that, that God is going to dwell in the hearts of men, not uh, in a temple built with human hands, but in, in a different temple. And he's referring to us, that we are the temple of God, that we house the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are compelled to live and look like Christ. And as we look like Christ, and as we are heirs of Christ, the Spirit bears witness to that fact. And he goes, and you're also going to suffer with Christ. And you're going to suffer for Christ. Which just literally means that there's going to be hardships and challenges along the way. And as there are hardships and challenges along the way, we're going to continue to look to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. We're going to continue to set our eyes, Colossians 3 verse 2, on things above. And really that's what Paul's message and point is. And so we pick up in verse 18, building off of a life in the Spirit, a life following Christ, a life making Him our spiritual Father. And verse 18 says, And for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul says, look, if you're going to know and walk with Christ, you're going to bear witness with Christ. You're going to be heirs of Christ. You're going to no longer live according to the flesh. You're going to begin to live according to the Spirit. So he goes, you're not going to find yourself in darkness. You're going to find yourself walking in the light. But one of the implications of that too, he goes, and you are going to suffer with Christ. Well, Paul's point in verse 18 is, is, hey, if you do suffer with Christ, which will happen, he just says, you just need to know that the sufferings of this present time, this age, are not worth comparing to the future glory. He goes, what you experience here on earth is manageable because of what our future hope is. So he goes, even though there are hardships, and there are calamities, and there are challenges, and there is death, and there is peril, and potentially there is famine, and there are potentially a sword, and there are wars, and there are all these different things. He goes, you need to know that none of those things compare to a future glory with God. That's his point. He goes, you have an eternal hope. Now, this is Paul, the apostle, writing this. And Paul certainly has had his hand full of challenges. If you want to just read the challenges yourself, you can make you a note and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. But it's there that Paul says, look, five different times I was beaten by the Jews. He goes, 40 lashes less one, which he goes, that's enough to kill a man. He goes, five different times. He goes, there were three times I was beaten with rods. He goes. I know uh, what it's like to be hurt. He goes. I remember being stoned. Uh, now I don't know about you, but I've never been beaten five times with a cattail minus one. I've never, I've never been beaten with rods. I've never been stoned. And Paul adds those up, and according to me, they're they're right there. Nine times that he came very close to death. He goes. Look, I've been shipwrecked. He goes. I have been chased by my. By countrymen, I've been chased by my own men. He goes, I have been in danger on the sea. I have been danger, in danger in the wilderness. He goes, I have been without food. I have been near death. I have been cold. I have done all of those. And here it is, Paul, a guy who has experienced that much hardship, is writing to the church of Rome and saying, look, whatever you suffer in this life is nothing compared to the future glory to be revealed. Now I, I think we struggle to be excited about this text because many of us don't suffer to the to the length or the degree that many did in that day and time. Uh, we look at suffering and often oftentimes our suffering is very minuscule to what we read about Paul. Now that does not mean that everyone in this room has suffered in, in, a, in a way that seems minimal. There are many people in here that are in this particular time are suffering and experience hardship and trials and real challenges. And here's what Paul would say, and really what I want to encourage you in is, hey, set your eyes to a future hope. Remind yourself that as a believer in Christ and a follower of Him, there is more to come. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm not going to... Uh, Put it for you up on the screen, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter just reminds his audience people who were suffering for the cause of Christ, who were running for their lives, hiding in caves and catacombs at the hands of oppressive men in Rome. Paul writes, uh, or Peter writes to this group of people, and he goes, Hey, just remind yourself that you have an inheritance. And then he says this that is imperishable, that's undefiled that's unfading and that's kept in heaven for you. So what Paul is basically saying in a little different translation like the NIV, he goes, listen, you have an inheritance that will never spoil or fade away. That's being kept in heaven for you. He goes, that's what the believer's hope is. And that's what Paul was saying to the church of Rome. He goes, look, is there gonna be suffering in the present age? Yes, but it's not worth comparing to the glory, the future hope we have that will be revealed to us or some versions might even say in us or through us but the idea and inclination is is that because we suffer with Christ we are not only bearing witness that we are his children but we also have a future hope and a glorious inheritance because we are his heirs that's what Paul's saying but he doesn't stop there he continues on in verse 19 and the message gets a little more challenging and says this for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God Verse 20 goes on and says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Okay, I don't know if y'all just read this, but this is where it gets a little challenging. So Paul's talking about the future hope of the believer, and then he shifts to creation. Creation being anything that was impacted by the fall of man, which is not just you and I, which we were, Subjected to sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. But it's also talking about the earth and all of its creation. And so that would include birds of uh, the air, that would include fish of the sea, it would include mammals that stream uh, or roam around the ground, it would include uh, not only mammals, but also reptiles that slither around the ground. But the idea is, as Paul is saying, look, for the creation waits with eager longing. And then the question is, is for what? Well, it says, for the revealing of the sons of God. So who are the sons of God? The sons of God are the people bearing witness that Christ is our Father. Now, what's the point here? What the point is, is this, is that because Christ lives in us, because we have been conformed to his image, because his spirit is housed inside of us and he dwells in our hearts, it means that we should become what? Conformed to his image, Romans 12, 1 and 2. As we're conformed to his image, the idea and the implication is is that the creation is on its tiptoes, as one commentator would suggest, watching and waiting to see what happens. Now, why would the creation watch and wait? Well, it's because they long for the revealing of the sons of God because creation itself was also, verse 20, subjected to futility. So the idea is this. Back long ago in Genesis chapter three, you have a picture of man and woman living together as one flesh, honoring God in all ways, living with God in fellowship. In Genesis chapter three, there was a tormentor one that you would call Diablos or the accuser. We would also call him Satan. He showed up in the Garden of Eden and he began to tempt Adam and Eve. And what did he tempt them with? He just says, listen, here's here's this this fruit. God said, hey, you you shouldn't touch it or you're going to die, which is not what he said. Uh, But the reality is, is he went to Eve and said, hey, why don't you take a bite? Why don't you enjoy this? Now, the instruction, if you remember, was that you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, the problem was is that the the accuser, Satan, comes and he he tempts uh, Eve with it and Eve desires it. But the problem was is that she desired it because of what the accuser said she would acquire basically that if you if you eat of this your eyes will be opened and you will know what god knows you'll know good and evil so the lie was is that hey if you take if you take this you'll know you'll know what god knows the truth was if you eat this you'll know good and evil Now, here's the challenge, is they take it and they eat of its fruit, and at that point, they've now disobeyed God, sin has entered the world, and there is a separation that happens between mankind and God. And there are a multitude of consequences that are laid out. In Genesis chapter 3, we know that there is now going to be birth pain. There's going to be labor pains. Ladies, you can thank the fall of man in Genesis 3 for birth pain. Um, We know that there's going to be thorns and thistles, that work is going to be laborious and hard. No longer would fruitful labor be a pleasure in the Garden of Eden. Matter of fact, the Garden of Eden will exist no more because God's going to remove them from the Garden of Eden. And so there, there will not be a fellowship with God and there will not be fellowship in the Garden of Eden. Now they will go and they will experience hardship and toil and labor and thorns and thistles as a result of the fall of man. And so now we know that work is laborious. It's why not only do we have the fall of man to thank for labor pains, but it's also why we have Monday pains. (laughs) Not only that, but we know that there's going to be enmity between a woman and her husband, that a woman's going to want to strive for her husband and ultimately his leadership, which is why we have oftentimes marriage pains. But the other consequence is not only the removal from the Garden of Eden, but ultimately the removal from God's presence, in which is we experience death. Death for eternity apart from God and death for our physical bodies. All a result of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. But friends, it's not just there that we were subjected to futility, but apparently Paul says the creation too was subjected to futility. That even all of creation was impacted by what happened in the account of Genesis chapter 3. And that's what Paul is saying. He goes, look, now creation, verse 19, waits with eager longing and expectation on its tiptoes for the revealing of the sons of God. We, we can know that the closer we become conformed to the image of Christ and the more that we in this day and age live for him as his spirit indwells the believer and the more that we make an impact, a light in the darkness, the more we know that creation even pays attention to what's happening, which is crazy to think about. But it says because creation was subjected to futility on the account of man's sin, that's true, but it says not willingly. It wasn't creation that subjected itself to this, it was mankind that rebelled against God and ultimately mankind's sin impacted creation. But it was because of him who subjected it in hope. And the question is, is who subjected who? Well, the in- the, the, probably the best view of this is that God is in view here, and he is the one who subjected all of it. Listen, Satan is limited in his scope and power, but God ultimately can allow anything. Now listen, what I want you to realize is though it is God who subjected even the creation in hope, we need to know that Satan and Adam ultimately had a plan in that, but Satan and Adam, did never, they never had more authority than God had. And even to this day, that is true. So God has all authority here, but what we need to know is that there is suffering in the present time and there is challenges and sufferings in this present time and a future glory, but that's not just for us, but ultimately it seems to be for creation as well. Matter of fact, let's go on to verse 21. If you read in the context of verse 20, the creation did not subject itself willingly, but it was in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22 goes on, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So here's Paul's point. Not only were we impacted by sin in the Garden of Eden but so was all of creation. That means the earth and everything that inhabits the earth. Now what's incredible is, is that they are also longing to be set free from their own bondage. And they are waiting to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, which means they've got their eyes on you and me. It means that they are longing to see what happens in this grand scheme of things because as we draw near to God and ultimately God begins to reveal his plans in the last days, it is not only hope for you as a believer, it is also hope for all of creation. And so God has an entire big scheme here and we are just a part of this plan. And it says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What that basically means is is that these idea of birth pains are simply a result of past sin, past events, and it's also a longing for a future deliverance. See, when you have birth pains, there's a joy that follows it that makes every pain worth it. And ultimately, that's what Paul is saying. He goes, listen, all of creation is longing for a future day in which it too is restored. So we oftentimes think about eternal things and future things, and I think we often think, well, I can't wait to see God face-to-face, and I can't wait to be restored. But listen, it's not just restoration for us, it's restoration for everything. And if, if you were to think about a word that would kind of sum up the message today, I think there would be two words that you could use. I think you could use restoration, or I think you could use the word reconciliation. Because ultimately, isn't that God's plan is to reconcile all things to himself? Matter of fact, do you know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a passage in verse 17 that just talks about that we're a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. But Then it talks about something next. And you know what it talks about? That we are now ministers of reconciliation. Now look. When you think about that word, I think, oh, I'm a minister of reconciliation. I'm to take somebody who doesn't know Christ and bring them to Christ. But I think if, if you really get the context of all that's going on here in this passage, a minister of reconciliation is a minister of Christ's likeness because Christ lives in you. You're an heir to God, the Father, in all ways. Everything you do ultimately is bringing about a closer revealing of God throughout all the earth. Which means... That when you see Matthew chapter five and Jesus talking about the Sermon on the Mount, that you're the light of the world. You're a city on the hill. The implication is way more than what we do in a classroom with kids. Oh, isn't it gonna be cute kids? You're gonna be, you're gonna be a light of the world. You're gonna be a city on the hill. Hey, this little light of mine. If you and I could only grasp the importance of that if you could only get and understand that what's happening in your life is ultimately not just drawing the attention of people around you, but it's drawing the attention of all of God's creation, longing with birth pains to be reconciled and restored to a correct relationship with God that was broken because of the sin and the fall of man in Genesis chapter three. See, God desires to make all things right. Right? And all things is not just the relationship that you and I have to him, but it's the relationship that all of creation has to him. That's Paul's point, which is incredibly profound. It just seems so huge in the scheme of things. And you got to ask yourself the question, well, when will that happen? What will it look like? Will it ever happen? And I would say this, one, yes, I believe that it will happen, I can't tell you when it will happen, but I can with certainty tell you what it will look like when it happens. And so if you want to turn and hold your spot and you want to try to turn or attempt to, you can go to Isaiah chapter 11 with me. If not, I'll put it for you on the screen. You can make yourself a note and go read it a little bit later. That's fine. But the prophet Isaiah tells us what it's going to look like for a a true judicial king to reign. Now, I don't know about you, but we struggle to... To see what it would look like to have a true judicial system or a king to reign. Um, Israel had kings in the days, and they, they thought this is the way that they should rule and govern themselves. The problem was is that their kings became corrupt. What happens with corrupt kings? It, it oppresses the people, right? What happens with oppressed people? They look for hope, they look for a new king. The challenge is, is that we've been looking for a king or a judicial system to rule and reign. The problem is, we can't find it. Friends, we can't even agree on referees. I mean, think about it. I, I mean, seriously, we have, we have a town full of kids playing against each other, and I go out over my kids, and they go, Coach. I, I, can't, I can't do anything. I'm, not, I'm getting fouled. Never play. And they're not, they're not calling any fouls on me or on them. They, they don't call any fouls on them. I'm like, hey, dude, what, you, like, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, I just, it's not fair. It's not fair. We can't score. I can't get anybody. Nobody's getting open, coach. I'm like, hey, listen, are you telling me that you believe the refs are out to get you? I didn't say that. I mean, what are you saying? I'm not lying. This is going down in my huddle. Ain't no point in drawing up a play, okay? So you're telling me the, 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 you, you, they're trying to cheat you? No, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, then here's the deal. Go control what you can control. But here not this the truth? You got people from the same community yelling at refs you cheating my kid. I mean, that's what we say. We don't say that in our mind. But listen, y'all realize, like, we even struggle with sports games. Right? And the reason why is because we desire justice, don't we? Isn't that true? And so right now, it's like, hey, I don't think I'm getting justice, and, and there's a, probably a good portion of people in here that you're like, I'm waiting on a, a different president. Listen, I just want you to understand in a handful of years, if the presidency changes, you're going to have the same challenges, although they look a little different. Why? Because as long as we're on the earth, you're going to have a longing to be reconciled with God and you're going to have all of creation longing to be reconciled with God and you're going to have a same subset of challenges because wicked men inhabit the earth While some men are trying to be the light of the world and we're all waiting for the redemption of all that God has to be. But our redemption is not found in a person, in a a priest or in a king on this earth. It's only found in a person or a priest or a king named Jesus. And, And here we get to see what his rule and his reign looks like. And so Isaiah shows us in Isaiah 11, here's what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here's the point Isaiah says, Whoever this guy is, is going to come from the lineage of Jesse, which is the root of David, the Davidic throne, which Matthew chapter 1 and its genealogy there shows clearly that Jesus comes from the Davidic line. So I believe wholeheartedly this passage is talking about Jesus. I also believe that he's a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. I think there clearly is just talking about, it's a branch from the stump of Jesse, which speaks of humility of who Jesus is. Verse 2, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decides disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So the idea is he, whoever this is, which I believe is Jesus, is going to not only be judicial, but he's going to be ruled by the Spirit of the Lord, which brings about sevenfold places of wisdom. There's seven places of, of spirit-filled wisdom there that you would find. And it says and in verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now here's the deal. You don't see a complete picture of righteousness and faithfulness at a little league baseball, or baseball game or a basketball game. Why? Because it's not possible in our flesh. You're not gonna see it in a presidency. You're not gonna see it in any other place that inhabits the earth today. But one day you will have a supreme authority in Jesus Christ and he will reign with righteousness and faithfulness. And righteousness being the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loin literally is just speaking to and giving you the imagery that everything that Jesus does will be perfectly pure and judicial. He will never act out of the will of his father and he will never act in subjection to his absolute perfect character. And so here it is you will have a perfect ruling authority that everything will be subjected under his feet. And when that happens, here's what the world will look like. Verse six, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Can a wolf and a lamb dwell together right now? So you know the time has not come. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Is that possible right now? No, so the time has not come. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Verse 8 says The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child should put his hand in the adder's den. Man, that's crazy that humanity and beast alike will belong together. Verse nine says, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The idea and the implication is there is a day where everything will be restored and reconciled to God. Now we know that right now a child is not playing over a cobra's den. And we know that a child is not playing in the adder's house But what we do know and what we have a hopeful expectation is, is that one day God will bring about restoration and reconciliation of all things. Not only the redemptive purpose and qualities of our life, but also the creation, which right now has been subjected to futility and the sinfulness and the rebelliousness of men, although they didn't choose it themselves. That's Paul's point. Y'all got that? Y'all really have that? Well, praise the Lord. First service wasn't with me as much. There you go. So the point there is simply this. God wants to restore all things. Paul goes on in Romans 8, in verse 23, he says, and not only the creation. So he goes, look, this isn't just about the creation. He says, but we ourselves. So Paul says, look, it's not not just creation that's longing for restoration, reconciliation. He goes, we ourselves too, who have the first fruits of the spirit. He goes, groaning inwardly, as we await eagerly for adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, here's more. He says, okay, look, he goes, the earth is awaiting the redemption and the reconciliation of all that it needs. He goes, we too. And he goes, and where are we awaiting? Where are we? How are we groaning? How are we desiring more? He goes, in the redemption of our bodies. Now, what's interesting, he goes, hey, we have the first fruits. Now, the first fruits are what the people of Israel would bring in a harvest as a first fruit. You might think about the tithe, the first 10%. You get tithe. It really came from the idea of first fruits at, at the, the, the festivals. And they would, they would bring their grain and they would give a tenth of their grain. It was a first fruit. Here's what Paul is saying He goes, we have the first fruits of God in what? The Spirit wow you know what this means he goes right now you have the spirit of God and there's a lot of us that we're like God give me all that you got I want the spirit rain down with fire baby Paul goes look you're not getting anything compared to what you're going to get all you've got right now is first fruits so where when are we going to get it all well, you re- might remember Paul saying this to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. 12. He goes, right now you see in a mirror dimly lit, but one day you will see face to face. Consider even the words of John. I'm not gonna read them uh, or uh, put them up on the screen. I'll read it to you. 1 John chapter three, uh, the apostle John just says this. He goes, beloved, we are God's children now and what will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is that when he does appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So he goes, hey, look, he hasn't appeared yet. But when he does, not only are we going to be like him, we're also going to see him as he is. It means right now we just have the first fruits. Like right now we don't have all that God intends us to have. And that means we have an eternity to learn more about him, which I believe that it'll take an eternity. I believe that God desires to show you more and more and more of himself. And so we eagerly should wait. We should groan inwardly, verse 23, as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, that we would actually see our Father for who our Father is. And ultimately, when does that happen? It happens at the redemption of our bodies. So look, here's the deal. Redemption is not just about the inner being, but it seems to be that we cannot have a full and complete redemption without the redemption of our entire body. So you need to know that redemption does ultimately mean a restoration of your physical body. So let me explain it to you real quick. When we trust Jesus or follow him with our lives, when we believe this truth, that he is holy and perfect and pure, that we do not fit the standard, Romans 3, that we have sinned against God. When we know that and recognize that fact, and then we turn and we say, Lord, we know that we are, are not righteous. We know that none are righteous, not even one, Romans 3.10. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know, Romans 6.23, that the wage of that sin is death, that we are separated from you forever. But Lord, we also know that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, that you sent your son Christ to die for us. Now, when you look to Christ high and lifted up and he ultimately brings about forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation, he does so in the inner being. He gives you a new spirit. He he leads you and guides you no longer according to your flesh, your sin nature, but now according to his spirit that now inhabits you. You are now the temple of God and he wants to guide you. But here's the deal. Paul says, but that's not all. He goes, there's more. So what that means, when you see that we are a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. It means that it's, it's an inner being. The problem is, is that you have an inner being that's been renewed and you have an outer being that reminds you daily of why you're old. Not old just in age, but old in your flesh. We carry around, Paul says, this body of death. is what he called it. Which means as you get up and you have physical ailments and hardship and sickness and disease, you're just reminded this body is, is failing you. That's a body of that should cause longing and groaning for something new. At the same time, when you continually find yourself enslaved to the body, a body that yearns for substances, a body that, that, that uh, yearns for pride and self-discovery, when you desire a body that wants to be you and express yourself, you need to know there's a body that's corrupt and ultimately is in contrast to a new inner being. And so you have these two things waging war. You have a new life in Christ in the inner being and you have an outer body that is continually being dragged around and it is hard to resist. Which Paul says, it's a war that you wage. Make sense? Y'all with me? Now, why do I say that? Because here's what Paul says. He goes, we should eagerly await for adoption of sons and the redemption of our body. We should wait for a day in which Christ gives us a new body. And you might ask the question, well, is that going to happen? When's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? Well, here's what I'll tell you. Is it going to happen? Yes. When's it going to happen? I couldn't tell you. What will it look like? Let me, let's talk about it. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there really, really quick, um, and, and then we'll go from there. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll put it on the screen. You can certainly go back and read it. Um, it just says this, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so you know I'm not making this up. So it's not just me doing preacher talk and trying to confuse you. Paul says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. When he says, we shall not all sleep, he goes, when this happens, not everybody's gonna be dead. Okay, now Paul uses the word we here over and over again. So it implies that Paul thought this could happen in his day and time. So he goes, hey, we might not all be asleep, but we shall all be changed. He says this in verse 52, In a a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then we shall. this saying shall come to pass that is written." Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you read that and you go, okay, but I thought we already had the victory because Christ has already swallowed up death because he, he died and he crucified and then he was resurrected on the third day. And I would say, yes, absolutely, that's true. But why does Paul say, but this saying will come to pass? Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, we should eagerly still desire the redemption of our bodies. When does that happen? He goes, here's, here's when it happens. It happens when Christ returns for his church. And he goes, and here's what you need to know. Christ is going to cause the dead in Christ to be raised first. So that means anybody that has died from right now, this moment, back in your past, whether that be five years ago, five days ago, five months ago, or 50, or 60, or 5,000, doesn't matter. If their body lays in the ground, if they were a believer, I wholeheartedly believe that they, their spirit is with the Lord. But you need to know, it's their spirit. They do not have a physical body. Revelation 19 is a great picture that they are dressed fine linen, white and clean. And so there's a spirit clothed in righteousness, and ultimately it's fine linen, white and clean. But it's a spirit in heaven. The only glorified body that I'm aware of in heaven is that of Jesus Christ. Outside of that, nobody has a body. So when do we get a body? Well, it appears that Jesus will return. You might call it the rapture. If you're wondering where that even comes from, you can go read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, encourage you to do so. But here's the point. What Paul is saying, he goes, look, there's a point where you realize flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom and the imperishable, has to put on, I'm sorry, the perishable has to put on imperishable. When does that happen? Here's when it happens. Christ returns. When Christ returns, the dead in Christ get a new body. So they get a new body and it meets their spirit. Paul says, and there are gonna be some that are not what, dead. So when the trumpet sounds, what happens to you? Well, you're changed. Why? Because you and I cannot take a corrupt body that Paul says we drag around as a body of death into a heaven who is perfect. So even though your inner being's been renewed, your outer being is decaying and rotting away and is full of flesh and sin. And so it's imperative that Christ renews it. Now Some of you are like, man, I never knew all this. What? You're you're kidding me. I I pray that it's... Just the beginning of an exploration for you. But here's what you need to know. There's no one in heaven right now who has a glorified body, except for that of Jesus Christ. And there's going to be tons of wonderful things that we can do with a glorified body. Can eat, but we don't have to. Seems to be that Jesus, when he went into the room where his disciples were locked and afraid, he walked right through the doors. So that could be cool. Here's what we do know. We know that the purposes of reconciliation across the globe is to com- have a complete and total restoration and what I would say is renewal of what Adam and Eve had before the fall of man. So you wonder, what in the world's heaven gonna be like? Heaven's going to be a return to what life would have been like before the fall of man. You think Adam and Eve got along with the bears and the lions before the fall? Yeah. Matter of fact, interesting note, go read Genesis chapter two, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter nine, verses two and three, it is there with Noah that God actually took and he put in animals the fear of man so they would run from us. Why? So they wouldn't be easy prey. And he tells Noah, There's, you can have anything you need to provide for yourself on the earth. But listen, it was there that you saw some of the consequences that, that take place. All of that's going to be restored and renewed, which is why he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? When all of this takes place, do you realize that God has consummated all of his purposes and we can celebrate that? You know what Paul says to the church of Corinth though at the very end of all that, where he tells you about flesh and blood not entering the kingdom of God and about that you know, perishable have to put on the imperishable. You know what, how he ends that? Verse 58, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. He says, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord in, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why does he write that? He goes, look, you need to know that God's reconciling the world to his purposes, but you also need to know that in the midst of it, though life is hard, though there are challenges, though there is a ton of suffering, you need to know, sounds similar, doesn't it? That it doesn't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to you in Christ. When God, when he does that, will not only renew you, but he's gonna renew all the purposes of creation, which is really encouraging. And that's why he says in verse 24, and he closes in this way, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He goes, you walk by faith and not by sight. What's the point? Hey, keep running. He uses the word with patience That's the same word in the Greek we've talked about, hupomone which means to be steadfast, to be immovable. How do you be steadfast? Leon Morris says it this way. He goes, it's the attitude of a soldier who's in the thick of this battle, uh, thick of a battle, but does not become dismayed, but continues to fight stoutly on whatever the difficulties are. means that you're in the trenches and you just keep going, even though the war drags on. That's what our hope is. And listen, Corey Ten Boone says it this way, which I think is encouraging. She said, just never be, able, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And that's true. And that's what we do. God, I don't know how all of this comes to pass. God, I don't know all the timelines, although we have clues. But listen, here's what we do know. Lord, it seems that to be that the earth is, is having these child pains, which I don't know about you. If Hopefully you can see that. More storms, more tornadoes, more vol- volcanoes, more ruptures, more challenges than we've ever had. Why? Paul says because creation's longing to be restored. It's a part of God's grand plan, so trust him. I think uh, in the Library of Congress, there's a piece of paper and a note of Ben Franklin's epitaph. I don't know that Ben Franklin really was a believer, but I do think he wrote this, and it was accurate. This is what he said, penned personally by him. He says, the body of Ben Franklin, printer, and this is what you would see on his grave. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here. He goes on, Food for worms, but the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will be, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. It's in the Library of Congress. You can pull it up if you'd like for yourself. And that's what he said. He goes, Look, and I think it was a good theology. The body goes back to the To the dust in which it came from decays as bad as it is for the worms. But we are restored, perfected, and we await for a new body that is wholly perfected and made new by our author. Reconciled and restored totally, not just the inner being, but the outer being, as we long and await for an entire eternity with Jesus, in which we get to know him, Discover more about him and see not in part but in whole all that God has for us. And a glorious, wonderful picture of God's redemptive purposes, which is really cool for me because I'm like, God, you've just began a work. And if you begin something, as Paul writes to the church of Philippi, Philippians 1 6, he goes, I trust that God will carry it unto completion. So you look at your life and you go, man, I'm just not where I should be. Well, just praise God, there's a lot of progress still to be made. Right and praise God that He plans to crucify and ultimately get rid of this old nasty body that we carry around that continues to permeate in our 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 uh, condition that really diminishes all that we can be in Christ. Right, but a future day we long for. Let me pray for us, Father in heaven. We thank you for this morning. Pray God that you would use it to spur us on towards love and good deeds. I pray that you would help us, just God to 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 know that it is in this hope that we are saved. Lord, it's a lot of information, and Lord, it's crazy to even think that your plan is this enormous. But Lord, I also pray that it would really bring some greater evidence to many of us in this room who say, well, is God really real? Lord, you are the only one that could pull off a plan of this magnitude. It is far more, it is far greater than any mind can comprehend. And, and Your Word has written about it. You have told us about it in the Scriptures. And, and Lord, You are bringing things to pass. And for that, Lord, we, we don't have a, a hope or a reality that's not tangible. Lord, it, it is difficult for us to see. It's difficult for us to, to wrap our head around. It is certainly a mystery. But, Lord, with each passing day, Lord, we are beginning to see the hope revealed. And we thank You for that. And we pray that You would give us the courage to be a soldier as we walk in the thick of battle, not dismayed by life's challenges. We love you. We thank you that our faith is not futile, that in Christ we have hope, and that we can endure for your sake with the help of your Spirit. We love you, trust you, thank you, and give this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen.